0: Welcome to the In the Limelight Podcast. I'm your host, Clarissa Bird, and every week I bring you great information from fabulous people that I get to meet all over the world. I interview public figures, influencers, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, millionaires, and moguls that share their know-how, tipping points, pivotal moments, and life lessons. I promise you educative, empowering, and entertaining conversations with entrepreneurs that have a social conscience. Don't forget to find me on social. You can find me pretty much everywhere. Facebook, it's Clarissa Burt Official. Also sign up for my newsletter at ClarissaBurt.com. That way you can keep abreast of the in the Limelight media as it's coming out. And you'll be getting my weekly newsletter along with the In the Limelight magazine every quarter. Check out in the limelightmedia.com. Welcome to this episode of Bookish. I am so happy to have you here and I'm happy to be here with our guest today. This is Cecil Harris. He is the author of Different Strokes, Serena, Venus and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. Thank you so much for joining us, Cecil. How are you?
1: I'm fine, Ebony. Thank you for inviting me. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. And I'm excited to talk about this book because, you know, the, the film about the um, the famous tennis players and their father. Uh, the t- film, I think it's called King Richard. It just yeah. came out, what, last year? So this is great timing.
1: Yes, um, I've been trying to capitalize on the success of the film, six Academy Award nominations and an Oscar for Will Smith as best actor, although he did a lot to spoil what could have yeah. been a great night at yeah. the yeah. Oscars. <laughs> yeah the film stands on its own merits and it tells i think the most remarkable story for siblings in any sport no sibling act has been as successful as venus and serena Mm
0: -hmm. okay so let's start talking about that so how did um the great richard williams how did he fulfill this plan uh, about uh, to turn his his two kids his two dot well two of his kids into these like world champion tennis players. (laughs) How did that happen?
1: Richard Williams was a businessman, started businesses in construction, security, and other areas, moderately successful, but he was watching a tennis tournament on TV one Sunday afternoon and saw the winner, Virginia Ruzic of Romania, get a check for $40,000, and that struck him as odd. She only had to play one week. It's not a major tournament, and she got $40,000. And that gave Richard the idea to to turn his two youngest daughters into tennis champions. At first, he had to sell that to his wife at the time, Oracine Price, a nurse by trade. She eventually bought in. And then Richard bought tennis books and VHS tapes because he did not come from a tennis background at all. He had to teach himself and Oracine enough about the sport to impart it to their daughters and hope they wouldn't hate it. (laughs) As it turned out, Venus and Serena really took to tennis, and they were in Compton, California, hardly a tennis hotbed, but at least there were tennis courts where they could practice, and once Venus and Serena got good enough, Richard started going to the more successful tennis coaches in Southern California and writing to the ones in Florida, trying to get them interested in his daughters, and as the movie King Richard pointed out, Richard began a correspondence with Rick Macy, who runs a tennis academy to this day in in South Florida. Rick came out to California to take a look at the girls, saw that they were as good as advertised, and he facilitated the move from Compton, California, to Palm Beach, Florida, where Venus and Serena could play on finely manicured courts all year round. And at the same time, Richard began to court the sportswear manufacturers, Nike, Reebok, adidas and venus was able to sign a fairly lucrative deal with reebok Mm -hmm. and that set the family on their way for venus and serena to turn pro at 14 which is totally against what normally happens in tennis
0: right yeah that is i mean was she the youngest at that point i think one
1: of the youngest of all time i know tracy austin from your part of the woods there southern california turned pro when she was 13 okay and there have been a few others who have turned pro. Jennifer Capriati was also very young when she turned pro. Yeah,
0: that's right, yeah, yeah. But
1: Venus at 14 and Serena's 15 months younger. She also turned pro at 14, but it rarely works. Mm-hmm. Most of the time they are flashes in the pan. They don't become superstars. Or in Jennifer Capriati's case, they get into trouble at a very young age. She was arrested for shoplifting and uh, drug possession at a very young age. But you know, to credit to Richard Williams and Orsine Price, they kept their daughters focused, kept them out of trouble. They both loved tennis, and the fact that they had each other, they were able to push each other. There's something they could do with each other every day. Mm-hmm. And Orsine became well; she was a nurse full time. She began to homeschool the children, so they took them out of regular school and they were learning at home. And Richard made the decision to take them out of junior tennis, even though they were doing pretty well at junior tennis, but he met so many spoiled children and overbearing, obnoxious parents that he didn't want Venus and Serena to be in that world. And he concluded, they're better off just practicing with each other, playing against each other. And when I think they're ready to turn pro, they'll turn pro. And that was against conventional wisdom. So many people thought he would spoil these girls or they wouldn't be match tough enough once they started because they were bypassing the junior tennis circuit, but it worked out. And now other tennis parents have followed the Richard Williams model.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now let's talk a little bit about, um, black participation in tennis because watching the film, it was quite obvious. And this came up a lot in the film that, uh, black people were just a minority in that sport. So how, what factors prevent um, black participation in tennis?
1: Well, for one thing, uh, uh, let's say finances. It's a very expensive sport. Tennis Mm -hmm. lessons are expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some tennis academies in Florida that charge $80,000 per child per year, way beyond the means of the typical American family. So that's why American tennis players to be from rich families not necessarily the best athletes but from the richer families and richard again went went out bought tennis books and vhs tapes taught himself and his wife enough to impart to the children and once venus and serena got good enough they were able to attract better coaches but that's not something that a typical african-american family can afford to do so finances is a problem geography is an issue because I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, where there were no tennis courts in my neighborhood. So even if I liked watching tennis on TV, there's nowhere for me to learn the sport. Plenty of basketball courts, plenty of places to run around, but no tennis facilities. And that's the case in a lot of African-American communities. There's just no, no access to tennis. And there's also a cultural component. If your friends aren't doing something, If other members of your family aren't doing something, then it's far less likely that you'll want to do it. That's why there aren't as many Blacks in hockey, for example. There aren't as many Blacks in golf. There aren't as many Blacks in tennis compared to basketball, football, track and field, boxing, because of what you see in your community, what you see your friends doing. So Richard Williams had a lot to go against when he decided, I'm going to make my two daughters tennis champions because... Yeah, we don't have a very long history in major tennis. Althea Gibson was the first in 1950. That's really not that long ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's talk about um, Althea? A- a- Althea Gibson.
0: Althea Gibson. So she was the first major black tennis champion. Why is she unknown?
1: <laughs> well, it's unfortunate that the twin isms of racism and sexism contributed. But also, tennis was an amateur sport in the 1950s, and it was not a TV sport. So when Althea Gibson was number one in the world, she won Wimbledon twice. That's the most prestigious tournament in the world, the annual grass court tournament in London. She won the U.S. Nationals twice. It's now the U.S. Open. She won the French Nationals, and she won six major doubles titles. All of that in the 1950s, but very few people saw her win those titles. As I was researching the book, I interviewed her nephew and I asked him, how did you find out that Althea Gibson had won Wimbledon? And this was in 1957. His mother was waiting by the phone for Althea to call from Wimbledon. Hey, I just won Wimbledon. (laughs) It wasn't on TV. It wasn't on radio. No smartphones, (laughs) no websites to, to monitor. That's how it was. So when Althea Gibson retired from tennis in 1958, she was number one in the world but she didn't have any money mm. many of the white male tennis stars were able to stay on the circuit because they were getting under the table payments appearance fees just to show up or like a don budge a name that tennis fans would know he had a lucrative endorsement deal with wilson tennis rackets so even though he was an amateur in quotes he was making so much money from Wilson sporting goods that he could afford to just play tennis Althea Gibson was never given that luxury, and that was largely because of racism and sexism. I can make another analogy for you, Ebony. Uh, When Jackie Robinson retired from baseball in 1957, he had a cushy job waiting for him as vice president of Chop Full of Nuts, a restaurant chain. So he went right from the baseball field to a vice president's job at a corporation. Nobody offered that to Althea Gibson.
0: Mm. Why, um, CISO, does Arthur Ashe's name grace the world's largest uh, tennis venue?
1: Well, that's a great question. Arthur Ashe was the second Black major tennis champion. He came along in the 1960s and played into the 1970s. He was as much of a humanitarian as a tennis champion. He won the very first U.S. Open in 1968 won the Australian Open in 1970, won Wimbledon in 1975, so three of the major titles. Mm -hmm. And he was a star all over the world. And he really came into tennis when it became a television sport. The US Open was televised for the first time in 1968 by CBS, and he won it. So for many tennis fans, he was the first Black tennis player they ever saw. But he was also a social activist. He co-founded a group, Artists and Athletes Against Apartheid. Arthur Ashe and Harry Belafonte started that because at the time the South African white minority was oppressing the black majority. And it was totally unfair. And Arthur Ashe was not afraid to speak out about injustices such as that. And he demanded the right to go to South Africa, not as an honorary white, that's what they used to do when non-whites wanted to go there, but as a black man who could walk around freely and talk to whoever he wanted And those demands were actually granted. So he did that in 1973, going to South Africa. So because of his humanitarian gestures, when the US Tennis Association built the number one stadium, the main show court at the US Open, there were opportunities for them to sell the naming rights to the highest bidder. But the USTA decided that Arthur Ashe's name should go on that stadium because he represents not only tennis greatness, but really the best of what American sports has to offer. And I'm glad that his name is on it. It's not McDonald's Stadium or something. It's Arthur Ashe Stadium.
0: Right, yeah. Isn't that something? <laughs> Today we have like Nokia. Well, in, in LA, Nokia Stadium, Microsoft Stadium. It's Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, um, so tell me CISO, what is venus and serena's legacy in tennis
1: well they've basically inspired two generations of young girls and boys to play the sport Mm -hmm. there are more people of color playing tennis than ever before and i say that anecdotally i can't give you percentages but i go to the u.s open here in new york every year and every year i see more and more black families coming out to watch the tennis in the early days of going to the u.s open at its current venue in Queens, New York. There were times when I wouldn't see another Black person for like a half an hour just walking around the grounds. but that has completely changed. So Venus and Serena have made tennis cool to a lot of young people. They've made it something that they want to do. And that so many current tennis pros like Naomi Osaka, uh, Sloane Stevens, Madison Keys, Coco Gauff, Francis Tiafo, to name one of the prominent Black male players, they credit Venus and Serena with giving them incentive to want to learn tennis, play tennis, and become professionals. And that's why even after Venus and Serena stop playing whenever that is, because they, they they have not retired. They're still in the game, even in their early 40s. They continue to inspire so many others. So their influence will only continue to grow. So has,
0: has the game become more accessible to Black players then? I mean, as far as like pricing and um, tennis a sex a sex, what am I trying to say? Being able to access tennis courts in certain neighborhoods,
1: are okay. more blacks okay. get involved. That that's still a problem, Ebony. Um, it's still beyond the means of many black families. That's why in the book, Different Strokes, I write about the excess tennis village on the south side of Chicago. I went to see it with my own eyes. Uh, A Black man named Kamal Murray, who coached Sloan Stevens to the 2017 U.S. Open Championship, had a vision of starting a multi-court tennis facility in Chicago on the south side where the neighbors, where people in the neighborhood could play tennis. They wouldn't have to go out to the suburbs and be like the only Black person, or one of the few Black people in the program. It would be in their neighborhood. So when a rather notorious housing project was knocked down Kamal Murray outbid everyone for the vacant land and basically use his business background. He has an MBA from Florida A&M University to raise the funds to build Excess Tennis Village on the South Side. And I went there myself, 28 finely manicured tennis courts, 16 indoors, 12 outdoors, as I recall, Mm -hmm. and every weekend and after school, the courts are packed. And he also bartered a deal with students from the University of Chicago a block away to come in and tutor the kids for free in whatever subjects they may be struggling in. So there's an educational component as well. And I bring this up because we need more excess tennis villages around the country. It's there in Chicago. And one thing, it's, there are just as many white kids from the suburbs there as Black kids because they're not charging anywhere near $80,000 a year The lessons start at $80 per lesson, Mm. and there's a sliding scale, so if a family has trouble paying that, they can pay whatever they can afford, and Kamal had success sending some young people to major colleges. One of his uh, players got a four-year scholarship to play tennis at the University of Notre Dame, and he's doing it the right way, but we need those in cities all over the country.
0: Wow. Cecil, so this has been a very informative conversation. I've learned a lot about tennis. I learned a little Thank bit you. more about the Williams family. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Tell us where we can find you and your book.
1: Well, my website is CecilHarrisBooks.com. The book, Different Strokes, Serena Venus and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. It's at all major bookstores. If they don't have it in stock at the moment, they will order it. It's on amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, bookshop.org, which is a consortium of independent booksellers. So if you want the book, if it's not in your neighborhood bookstore, they will order it for you.
0: Mm, Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Uh, You're welcome, Ebony. Thank you.
0: And thank you for tuning into this episode of Bookish. I will see you next time. Bye-bye.